February 2017, the Pew Research Center published the results of a 13-country survey entitled, What It Takes to Be Truly One of Us. The purpose of this and other Pew-sponsored studies was to probe whether and in what ways attitudes toward, towards national identity, immigration, and uh, immig immigration and integration vary cross-nationally. What piqued Pew's curiosity? As the introduction to the report notes, quote, the tide of people moving across the world, be they immigrants or refugees, has sparked concern in Australia, Europe, and the United States. In particular, the ethnic, linguistic, and cultural background of migrants has triggered intense debates over the benefits and costs of growing diversity and the risk of open borders, borders in national identity. Or to frame the question in a slightly different, but I think compatible way, one might say that the meaning and boundaries of citizenship, that is, who belongs, on what terms, and to what end, are being deeply and openly contested across what are usually called developed industrialized democracies. But contested on what grounds, and by whom? To get at the substantive what question, Pew chose four possible litmus tests or badges of citizenship, birthplace, religion, language, and sharing national customs and traditions, and asked respondents to assign importance to each of these criteria along a standard four-point scale ranging from not at all important to very important. The basic template question was as follows. Some say that the following things are important for being truly, insert country. Others say they are less important. How important do you think each of the following is? Whence followed a list of criteria or characteristics that might serve um, as the basis for citizenship. To have been born in a survey country, to be able to speak the national language or languages, to be a member of the dominant religious denomination, usually Christianity, uh, and to share a country's customs and traditions. As to who was surveyed, Pew has long been interested in understanding the attitudes of citizens in countries that are likely to be destinations for migrating populations, especially in Europe, North America, and Australia. The report does not explain in detail the rationale for the countries that were selected to be surveyed, but whatever the reasons, we're left with a fairly robust random sample of citizens in a medium N cluster of countries that prima facie provide decent geographic, political, and cultural breadth. The Anglosphere is well represented by most of the usual suspects, the US, the UK, Australia, and Canada. Core long-standing members of the EU are represented, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Spain. Sweden stands in for social democratic Northern Europe, Greece, the South, Hungary, and Poland, both recent EU joiners and both roiled by the politics of immigration and integration are also included. I should say that Japan is the only Asian, Asian country surveyed, perhaps because of its status in the G7, but because Pew did not use the full battery of questions there, I've, I've largely dropped it from the analysis. So what is the, the cross-national Pew story? <clears throat> to help us understand the results, Pew created an additive index, in effect a weighted average, that combines responses for the four survey questions about national identity sorted by country. Responses to each of the four questions range from one to four, where one indicates the least exclusionary settlement sentiment and four represents the most exclusionary. For instance, those who said it is very important to have been born in a given country in order to truly belong to that, that country's nationality were coded as a four. Those who responded that the country of birth is not at all important 
responded, were coded as ones. The responses to the four questions were then added together to produce a total score of somewhere between four and 16, where four is the least exclusionary, 16 the most. Pew, by the way, did the, Q, did the coding for all of the European countries in the survey. I did the coding for the non-European countries, then went back and recalculated the European ones just to make sure that my coding and Pew's were uh, consistent. Here's what they found. In one way, the, the results are not all that surprising. As you can see, Greece, Hungary, and Poland are the only three countries to score higher than 13 out of 16, easily the most exclusionary end of, uh, uh, end of the countries studied. Swedish opinion, which comes in at an overall score of 9.85, is easily the least exclusionary. Indeed, it's the only country that scored uh, below 11. Beyond this, however, the results are not entirely self-evident or intuitive. The countries do not sort in a way that corresponds, for instance, to the standard distinction between ethnic and civic nationalism, nor do the results sort in ways that correspond closely to the difference between use sanguinis and use soli, um, citizenship regimes. There are some delicious ironies, especially the British score, that suggests that UK opinion with respect to citizenship and national identity is smack dab in the middle of EU opinion more generally. It hits the media, even as the country bumbles its way towards leaving the Union. Canadians come in at 11.24, right in the middle of the pack, hardly a standout one way or the other, and hardly a source of self-congratulation. And the American score, 11.64, is clearly influenced by the fact that almost one-third of Americans believe that it is very important to be Christian, to be truly American, despite the First Amendment's prohibition uh, of laws respecting an establishment of religion. <clears throat> Indeed, on the question about religion, American opinion clusters with views in Poland, Italy, and Hungary, rather than with citizens in other countries of the Anglosphere. <clears throat> so, the Pew Index is somewhat suggestive, I think, but taken as a whole, it doesn't provide a quick and dirty guide to understanding cross-national differences over the boundaries of citizenship. Rather, it invites us to drill down a bit more deeply into the country's specific data. In particular, since I'm most interested in the Canadian case, it invites the question, how are we to understand the Canadian results? I want to pursue three avenues of inquiry suggested by the Pew findings uh, on Canada. All three bring a different body of evidence to bear on these findings, and all three uh, bring a different analytical lens with which to probe them. The different body of evidence is drawn not from survey data, but from the history of a public school in Toronto, the Clinton Street Public School an elementary school in central Toronto that throughout the 20th century served as a gateway for immigrant, immigrant children and their families, and that happens to be the lead character in my book, Making a Global City. There it is. Clinton's history is a particularly rich resource for understanding what it means to be truly Canadian, because through the 20th century, the school's leadership and its larger community of teachers and parents clearly understood and explicitly argued that one of the central tasks of the school was literally to make citizens. The different analytical lens is supplied by an approach usually called political development, which is 
history done by political scientists. Um, the basic premise of political development is that where surveys of the sort produced by Pew can provide snapshots, even brilliant high resolution snapshots of public opinion, it is often as useful or maybe even more useful to understand the public mind in the form of a moving picture over time. To tell time politically, as Paul Pearson puts it. So to illustrate how these two analytical perspectives work, let me turn to Pew's first question about religion. Some say that the following things are important for being truly Canadian. Others say they are not important. How important do you think it is to be Christian, to be truly Canadian? <clears throat> As you can see from this slide, Canadians place themselves clearly towards the less exclusionary end of the spectrum. Only 15% of Canadians think it is very important to be Christian. 45% think it not important at all. And by contrast, as I noted a moment ago, almost a third of Americans believe Christianity is very important. Now, this relatively benign finding about religion as a criterion for true citizenship in Canada may not surprise, but it in fact represents a significant sh shift when viewed from a more uh, extended historical perspective. <clears throat> the fact of the matter is that it is only rather recently that Canadians have come to believe that religion and citizenship should not be joined at the hip. This is one of the places where the developmental backstory is helpful, and this equally is where Clinton Street Public School enters the picture. Let me start at the beginning. Clinton Street Public School was established in 1888 the direct result of the extraordinary growth that pushed residential settlement in Toronto beyond what we now think of as the downtown core. How rapid was that growth? Between 1881 and 1891, that is one decade, the population of Toronto more than doubled. That's the equivalent, think about it, in one decade of going from two and a half to five million people in Toronto in the GTA. Now, that created the need for uh, schools like Clinton, located in the newly accessible West End, in what is now called Little Italy, west of Bathurst and north of College, to serve the families that were snapping up the newly built houses along the College, uh, college Street streetcar line. Not, not surprisingly, the community from which the school drew in the first decades, and hence the student body, was largely British by origin, middle class by status, and Protestant or Anglican by belief which is how it remained up to and through the First War. And then things changed dramatically. Already by the 1920s, 40% of the student body was Jewish. By the early 30s, 70% was Jewish. And at least half of the school population was Jewish through to the early 1950s. Most of these students were second generation immigrants. Their parents had left Eastern Europe, typically, and come to Canada as a direct result of the Laurier-Sifton immigration campaign in the first decades of the 20th century. Their children, by and large, were born here. Many Jews at the time were involved either directly or, directly, directly or indirectly in the garment industry, so they considered the area around Clinton attractive because it was close to Spadina Avenue. Most of the parents worked hard, earned relatively little, nurtured their Jewish identity, and tended to vote left. Indeed, for those of you who are interested in political tri trivia, you'll be interested to know that the provincial riding in which Clinton sat and sits was one of two provincial constituencies to return a communist M MPP, A.A. A. McLeod, in three consecutive elections in the 1940s. 
right next to Joe Salzberg, who was in the adjacent riding. They, parents, also valued education, so Clinton, then typically Harvard, and then typically U of T, was a major part of their lives. That's the backdrop. <clears throat> Where do the ideas of citizenship fit? The standard issue report card used by the Toronto Board of Education throughout this period put citizenship front and center. This report card makes provision for a record of progress in school subjects and for a record of progress in some of the qualities of a good citizen, it says. Look inside the report card, and you'd see a list of virtues like reliability, self-control, cooperation, courtesy, and industry that charted each student's civic progress month by month. My favorite, and one that I try to nurture in my own students, refraining from quarreling and complaining. And what was the moral foundation of these personal qualities? Christianity. In 1937, the Provincial Department of Education published the Gray Book, a broad statement of basic educational philosophy that governed Ontario education for almost 40 years. The Gray Book made the link between citizenship and Christianity explicit. Quote, the schools of Ontario exist for the purpose of preparing children to live in a democratic society which bases its life upon the Christian ideal. So where did that leave Jewish students? On the one hand, they were being groomed for life in a democratic society, that is a society in which equality has to be something of a fundamental principle. On the other, they were being told that they didn't quite fully belong because they were missing one key attribute that most everyone else had, namely Christian belief. They were citizens minus. This status as citizens minus was reinforced by the daily recitation of the Lord's Prayer, readings from the Bible, and the celebration of major Christian holidays, especially Christmas. As I discovered in the interviews I undertook for the book, <clears throat> lots of Jewish families grumbled about these explicitly Christian exercises, but many, I think probably most, thought them the price to be paid for getting ahead in Canadian society. But then, in 1944, the government of Ontario upped the ante. Fresh from an election victory, Premier George Drew introduced compulsory religious education into Ontario public schools as a way of arresting moral decline among Ontario's youth. The new rules required that all students in grades one through eight receive religious education for two half-hour periods per week as part of a regular school curriculum delivered in a way that was as, quote, thorough and serious as courses in social studies or science. To be clear, the Drew regulations were not intended to teach children about religion. They were meant to teach them religion. As the principal of Queen's University put it, the future of democracy turned on Protestants, quote, putting religion into the schools. To help teachers prepare, the government produced a complete set of grade-specific curriculum guides for Ontario teachers that contained both a sort of Coles or Sparks Notes version of the Bible and a complete menu of <coughs> lesson plans. The curriculum guides make for interesting reading, and I talk about them at greater length in the book. Suffice it to say, <coughs> Jews do not fare well in these guides, especially in the Passion story, which is told as a spine-tingling tale of hatred and deceit. One curriculum guide asks, 
Why did the Jewish authorities wish to put Jesus to death? The answer, because the Jewish rulers felt increasingly threatened. And so the Jewish leaders aroused the bloodlust of the mob and egged them on to threaten to report the governor, Pontius Pilate, to Caesar until their hate was satisfied. Or to, dis to distill the story told by the guides into one pithy sentence, the, the Jews killed Jesus. Now, you might wonder how a school like Clinton, which was 50 to 60% Jewish at the time, reacted to this curriculum and to this narrative. The basic answer is that the school's leadership quietly resisted the ministry's directives and simply didn't teach what they were supposed to, actually required to teach. Between them, Anglo-Protestant teachers and Jewish parents came up with an, with an alternative pedagogical plan that drew its inspiration from a remarkable American program on civil rights that had been developed in Springfield, Massachusetts. But not every school was as creative or willing to resist, as, resist the Department of Education. So when the provincial government created a royal commission in 1945 to chart the future of public education in Ontario, the Canadian Jewish Congress seized the opportunity to explain its reservations about religious instruction in the schools. The intellectual leadership here fell to Rabbi Abraham Feinberg, the rabbi of Holy Blossom Temple. In both oral and written testimony to the commission, Feinberg argued that denominational religious instruction uh, of the sort blessed by the Jew government was inconsistent with the, quote, inalienable, inalienable, inalienability of fundamental rights of every individual. Besides, he argued, religious instruction would undermine rather than support democratic citizenship because it, quote, divides Canadians into a superior grade, consisting of those who pro profess a standardized creed, and an inferior grade obliged to uphold a different conviction. And notice, this is before the UN Declaration. This is before American court cases uh, on the subject and so on. So it's, it's quite remarkable testimony. Not surprisingly, Fein Feinberg's plan fell on deaf ears in 1945. But it is worth returning to it because his argument anticipated the, the interpretive uh, approach to religion, what's usually called proportionality, that has become standard in Charter of Rights cases dealing with claims of religion or uh, uh, freedom of conscience. Indeed, when the courts finally struck down both compulsory religious instruction and compulsory religious exercises in the late 1980s, and not until the late 1980s, their arguments built directly on the foundation provided by Rabbi Feinberg's 1945 testimony albeit with a charterly twist at the end. As the majority in one of the cases, Zilberberg, put it, quote, one aspect of the charter freedom of conscience and religion is freedom from conformity. The practice of a majoritarian religion cannot be imposed on religious minorities. It is not necessary to give primacy to the Christian religion in school opening exercises. They, opening exercises, can be more appropriately founded upon the multicultural traditions of our society the multicultural traditions of our society. Keep that phrase in mind, I will return to it. So that's one part of the story how, of how Canadians, or at least Ontarians, went from supporting compulsory religious education in the schools in the 40s to the current situation in which only 15% of Canadian respondents to the Pew uh, answered that it is very important uh, that one be Christian in order to be truly Canadian. To be sure, the decline of support for religion as a central component of Canadian identity or citizenship 
is rather more complex than a brief survey such as this can suggest. Still, it's tempting to say that the basic developmental story involves connecting enlarging dots from Rabbi Feinberg's contention in the 40s that religious instruction would divide rather than unite Canadians to the court's conclusion in the 1980s that it is not necessary to give pr primacy to one religion to the public's current lack of enthusiasm, demonstrated by Pew, for the idea that religion is a necessary component of citizenship. But there may be a second, less obvious developmental lesson here as well. The Pew survey frames the religion question in much the same way that the Ontario Court of Appeals did. It focuses on whether particular religious beliefs are necessary for citizenship. But the current headline debates about religion, for instance, over the display of religious symbols in, public, in the public sphere, suggest that the question of religion is not quite as straightforward at, for the, at the moment. For when the Harper government tried to prevent a Muslim woman from wearing a hijab to her citizenship ceremony, and when the government of Quebec promises to ban teachers and other state officials from wearing religious sim symbols while discharging public responsibilities, then the question is not whether religion is necessary for democratic citizenship, but whether religion is compatible with democratic citizenship. And that difference raises a series of questions that I will ask but not answer. Are we witnessing, not just in Quebec but elsewhere, a basic change in the way Canadians understand citizenship? Or will this new way of framing the relation between religion and the state become a sort of second layer that rests on but does not simply displace the terms of the debate that have dominated the discussion from the days of the Drew Regulation, that is, by some combination of individual rights and equal citizenship? So this is my first point. It's taking me a hell of a time to get there. Remember? Telling tales out of school, leaning on the history of a school like Clinton, both helps to explain the Pew findings and to complicate them, actually. This leads me to my second observation about how the history of an urban gateway school like Clinton can be helpful in sorting out the issues raised in the Pew survey. Return to the cross-national citizenship index for a moment. One of the things that can be uh, obscured by a simple index such as this is the internal variation among the questions and answers. To be fair, Pew itself is rel relatively sensitive to these internal differences. As the larger Pew report notes, one of the things that is striking about the findings is that, without exception, the highest, that's what in terms of most exclusionary scores, come in response to the language about, uh, to the question about language. Take the Dutch, for instance. On the questions about birthplace, religion, and cultural heritage, the Dutch are among the most permissive of the countries surveyed, which is why their overall score is well below the EU mean and below the Canadian score as well. Yet with respect to language, none of the 13 countries surveyed scores higher. Fully 84% of Dutch respondents thought that it is very important that one speak Dutch to be truly one of us. And while the Dutch data are especially striking, the same gap, gap uh, between language and other badges of citizenship characterizes all of the countries surveyed. So what's interesting about the Canadian data is this. 59%, almost three, in, uh, three out of five, 
believe that it is very important that citizens speak one of the official languages. But it turns out that this is the least exclusionary um, or the least demanding result of all 13 countries surveyed. Less demanding by a considerable margin than the other English-speaking countries, including Australia. Less demanding even than the Swedes, who in all other respects are strikingly undemanding in their definition of what it takes to be truly Swedish. And clearly, less demanding than the Dutch. <clears throat> How to make sense of this? Here again, I think the history of Clinton Street School provides some context, if not definitive answers. In the 20s, 30s, and 40s, Toronto's Jewish population was concentrated downtown. With the prosperity that followed World War II, many Jewish families headed north to the suburbs. Their exodus up the hill was made possible by the rapid expansion of Toronto's roads, subways, housing developments, and malls. And who built that infrastructure? In large measure, the Italians, then Portuguese immigrants, who now settled in the very houses around Clinton that were left behind in the suburban exodus. To understand how Southern European immigration transformed the Clinton community, consider this factoid. In the 1950s, St. Agnes Church, for those of you who know the area, it's the one at the corner of Grace and Dundas, um, now the Portuguese uh, parish, was the parish that served the Italian population in the area. According to parish records, in 1958, one calendar year, the priests at St. Agnes performed 310 weddings and 763 baptisms, almost one wedding and two baptisms every day. The Census of Canada records the effect of this ecclesiastical activity. In 1961, according to the census, there were 1,300 more children in the Clinton catchment area than there had been just 10 years before. This population explosion posed a huge challenge because all, these, all those kids needed schools and teachers, and they needed them immediately. But the challenge wasn't just about numbers. This was a completely new student body who had different needs and who therefore required different programs. In the 1940s, about 5% of Clinton students were first-generation immigrants. In the 1950s, almost 60% were first-generation. And the vast majority of these new Canadians, as they were called, came to the school with little or no English. So the school had to adapt very, very quickly. It's an amazing story, really, and one that I tell in the book, about how the school cobbled together resources to mount its own ESL program in the 1950s in the, fa in the face of complete and utter indifference from the school board. That said, the idea of citizenship that initially led Clinton's, fed Clinton's ESL program was conventional and assimilative. The point of ESL was to provide a vehicle for the assimilation of immigrant students into Canadian society. As the school's principal put it in a newsletter, we at Clinton are especially proud of the school's record because our students come from many lands and a great many of them are just learning our language and our ways. Most of the children are going to be good citizens. That's what it means to be a good citizen, to learn our language and our ways. The experience of assimilation at schools like Clinton was often difficult, coercive, and invasive. And many of the most striking examples uh, involve language. As my OISE 
colleague Hesh Troper has observed, school teachers and administrators thinking they were liberating immigrant children from old world parochialism or protecting them from the schoolyard bully took liberties with many an immigrant's most personal possession, his or her name. Gabriella became Gail, Luigi became Louis, Olga became Alice, and Herschel became Harold. And as I discovered in the interviews I conducted for the book, it was not uncommon, actually, for parents themselves to be agents of Anglicization, like the Dutch immigrants I heard about who created a house rule that only English could be spoken at home. But in the 60s and 70s, things began to change again. Clinton School became ever more diverse as it added to the Italian population other new Canadians, first Portuguese, uh, and then, in the, then a significant number of East Asian students in the mid-70s, and Hispanic students in the, in the early 80s. Thanks to a group of pro progressive school board trustees and to its research staff, the Toronto Board of Education began to tease out the conceptual and pedagogical differences between assimilation and integration. Now, but not then, a standard distinction in the literature. The Provincial Commission on the Future of Education, Hall Dennis, signaled the importance of a more supple, multicultural approach to pedagogy, and the federal government in 19, October 1971 embraced multiculturalism as the running mate to bilingualism. These various developments did not immediately or completely displace the, uh, the traditional policy of assimilation, but they did change the nature of the debate so that henceforth language and culture, and more specifically language and multiculture, were inextricably bound up with each other. In the event, the tension between uni or bilingualism and multiculturalism came to the head in the form of a contentious debate in the early 1980s over the status of heritage language programs in Toronto schools. What were heritage language programs? Like many immigrant-rich downtown schools, Clinton began after-school language programs in the late 70s to connect students with the language and culture of their origin country. In the first year of the program at Clinton, there were seven such heritage language classes, three in Italian, two in Spanish, one in Portuguese, and one in Greek, typically taught by members of the local cultural associations. These heritage programs were well enrolled and met a need in the community, but a number of people, <clears throat> educators, parents, cultural associations, and school board members, began to argue that if Toronto was really serious about the, its commitment to multiculturalism, then heritage language programs had to be integrated into the regular school day rather than consigned to an after-school activity. The task force commissioned by the Toronto Board of Education, which published several reports between 1975 and 1982, argued that to give preference to the official language of, languages of English and French was, in effect, to create a hierarchy of languages in the school. Um, that was no more justified in principle than establishing a hierarchy of races in society. Indeed, to the extent that the school system privileged English and French and outlawed others, their words, it turned schools into sites of domination and inequality. The call for embedding what was termed integrated language instruction in Toronto schools did not go unanswered. Speaking to a proposal to create a Ukrainian language school in the West End, the Toronto Star's warning was typical. In an editorial entitled, Don't Balkanize Schools, the newspaper drew out the consequences of linguistically and culturally distinct schooling in the following way. 
quote, Toronto could at worst end up with something of a segregated school system, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant core of schools surround, surrounded by a smaller network of ethnic schools. The danger of fragmentation is all too real as fully half the children in our school speaks, schools speak English as a second language. And where was Clinton? Right in the middle, in two senses. Clinton was in the thick of it politically because the school board decided to punt the question of heritage language back to the individual schools with instructions to hold an up or down school-wide referendum on integrating heritage language education into the regular school day. The school's parent committee took the local option responsibility seriously and spent a full year debating the issue, visiting schools in which integrated language education had been adopted and ultimately developing its own Clinton-appropriate approach. But Clinton was in the middle of it uh, as well because the school council occupied a middle ground between two apparently mutually exclusive alternatives. And that's the important takeaway. In my view, at least, what's important about the heritage language debate at Clinton is not so much the substance of the positions the parent council took, one that on which reasonable people could and did disagree, in the end, the school voted to maintain the status quo after school, but not integrated language classes. Some other schools and school boards, indeed, went in a different direction, and a heterogeneous set of programs exists to this day right across the country, in fact. But what's important is that Clinton school community really challenged the way the heritage language debate was being framed. For many participants in the debate, the heritage language question came down to an either-or choice between real multiculturalism on the one hand and balkanization and social disintegration on the other. There was precious little in between. But neither of these positions captured how the Clinton community thought of itself. <clears throat> in the end, as I say, the school community voted in 1985 not to integrate heritage languages into the regular school day. But it did not reject multicultural pedagogy. Indeed, it took the opportunity to double down on multicultural programming and initiatives, in curriculum, in staffing, and in connecting to its hyper-diverse community. For Clinton, language training and multicultural programming were not a matter of either or. They were instead a matter of more or less, precisely because they played off, off each other. And that, I think, as a country, is more or less where we have landed. And that, I suspect, therefore, helps to explain why the Canadian responses to the Pew survey question on language could both make a strong connection between language and citizenship, and at the same time, stand out as the most permissive among 13 countries surveyed on the question. So that is my second point, that the story of a school like Clinton helps to shed light on some of the internal variations within the Pew survey. <clears throat> This leads, however, to another and final puzzle. <clears throat> As I noted, Canadians adopt the least demanding position with respect to language uh, of the dozen or more countries surveyed. Now look at the heritage question. How important do you think sharing customs and traditions is to being fill in the nationality? Where on the language question, Canadians are among the least demanding, on this heritage question, they are among the most demanding, nudging out Poland for third most demanding result between Greece and Hungary, and much higher or more exclusionary than most of the other Europeans, like the Dutch and the Swedes. And this is a 
a small error on this, Canada should be on the other side of Poland. <clears throat> How to explain this? Notice a couple of things. Note, <clears throat> excuse me. Note first that the question Pew asks here is not about values or ideology or policy commitments. It is often claimed, especially by liberal political theorists, on whom people have to write essays, <laughs> um, what distinguishes liberal forms of nationalism from other more flammable and toxic forms is that liberal nationalism constructs national identity and citizenship on a foundation of consent rather than descent. It is what you believe that counts in determining who is truly one of us, not from whom you are descended. National identity in this sense is creedal uh, or civic. Either way, it is an ism, a set of more or less structured beliefs from which policy prescriptions can be derived much the way that multiculturalism is an ism. The Pew survey, notice, is different. It does not ask respondents whether or what to extent they measure us-ness in terms of shared values or a shared commitment, commitment to certain policies, programs, or principles. Rather, it asks respondents whether, the, whether they measure us-ness by the extent to which citizens share identifiable customs and traditions. And that focus leads, as Bernie Yak has shown in his book-length form, to a different way of thinking about national identity and nationalism. It heads in particular, or leads in particular, to the possibility that one can build and sustain a national community here and now by imagining an intergenerational community that is organized around and defined by its identification with symbols, rituals, heroic deeds, and traumatic events of the past as in Je me souviens. Yak's point is that to think of nations in terms of cultural heritage communities is both empirically more accurate and normatively more helpful as a way of thinking about nationalism than thinking in terms of a civic creed. My point is narrower. It is simply that, wittingly or unwittingly, Pew chose to pose its question on this score in a way that is closer to Yak's perspective than to that of the civic nationalists. Cultural heritage is the focus of the question and ideology, not shared values. But this focus on heritage raises an obvious question. Doesn't the content of that heritage matter? If a national cult cultural heritage is defined in ways that make it difficult or even impossible for newcomers to share, which is the operative verb, then the sharing of cultural customs and traditions would indeed be a highly exclusionary litmus test for the truly belonging. But let me suggest that cultural heritage need not be exclusionary. And let me further suggest that the best example for this proposition may be Canada. Here, Exhibit A is the Charter of Rights, the charter on, ba on the basis of which the Drew regulations on religious education were put out of their misery, the Charter of Rights that has frequently been invoked to structure the debate over language in Canada, the Charter of Rights that helps to shape Canada as a species of Benedict Anderson's imagined community. And what does um, the Charter say about shared cultural heritage? One thing. Section 27 reads, this Charter shall be interpreted in a manner consistent with the preservation and enhancement of the multicultural heritage of Canadians. Preser preservation and enhancement of the multicultural heritage of Canadians. 
Notice the precision of the language. To my earlier point, note first that the charter does not itself endorse or even mention multiculturalism. That is a matter of policy, programs, and partisan principles. What the charter does do is stand up for the multicultural heritage of Canadians, a more fa fundamental and enduring foundation in light of which legislation, like the Drew regulations, and every other charter provision shall be interpreted, those being the operative words. But notice as well that while this commitment to Canadians' multicultural heritage suggests something that is enduring in the very way that constitutions usually aspire to be, the heritage itself appears to be more dynamic and maybe even somewhat changeable and malleable. Canadians' cultural heritage is not just some frozen, fixed, unchanging relic of the past. It is something, according to the Charter, that is to be preserved and enhanced. And who has the responsibility to preserve and enhance that heritage? Well, I wager that public schools should be included in the mix. Look again at Clinton. Whether integrated or consigned to an after-school program, the aptly named heritage language classes mounted at Clinton were one vehicle for responding to the Charter's exhortation. In the early to mid-80s, Caroline Perry, Clinton parent, storyteller, and educator par excellence, workshopped what may be Ontario's most successful multicultural children's book of all time, Let's Celebrate Canada's Special Days. It provided children with a description of and a guide to important cultural festivals around the world, brilliantly arranged by a season of the year rather than by religion or ethnicity, so that the various celebrations and holidays appeared simultaneously familiar and different. Black History Month has become a regular focus of programming in February. Indeed, a grade one class recently published a book to celebrate at Clinton, uh, published a book to celebrate Black History Month that told the story in text and drawings of the life of Toronto's first black postmaster, Albert Jackson, who lived in the Clinton neighborhood. The school's landmark celebrations, first in 1988 on the centenary, then in, in 2013 on the 125th, 125th anniversary, included full-on student-centered center heritage projects. Like many others, the school has begun to address the question of indigenous heritage in an engaged way. And of course, Remembrance Day is an, is an annual vehicle for heritage programming, and so on and so forth. The simple point is that schools are integral to the ways in which customs and traditions are learned and shared. So all of this brings me to my third and final observation, which is both a point of criticism of the Pew survey and a final pitch to convince you that telling the story of a school like Clinton has some intellectual value. As I said at the outset, Pew asked respondents to react to four possible definitions of what really defines usness in their national context. Birthplace, religion, language, and the sharing of customs and traditions. It then added the scores gleaned from these results to develop an overall cross-national index of inclusion and exclusion. The assumption uh, Pew made in, in designing its survey and in displaying its results is that while the respondents' opinions would be more or less exclusionary, the criteria themselves were, were simply neutral on the exclusionary scale. <coughs> That's why in creating its index, Pew could assign the same range of scores, one to four, for each criterion, then simply add them up. But this assumption of, e of equality or neutrality among the questions seems wrong to me. 
In fact, the criteria are themselves more or less exclusionary. So it makes a difference not just how opinions cluster on a given question, but on which question. Take the question of birthplace, for instance. If one believes that one can't be truly Canadian if one uh, uh, is born outside of Canada, then logically, it seems to me, there one is left with two po possible policy options. The first is to oppose immigration altogether, which may well, unfortunately, be accurate. The second possibility is that immigration may be necessary, but immigrants will never be considered truly Canadian. Under, I, under either interpretation, this sets a very high, indeed impossibly high, bar for immigrants because they cannot possibly remedy what these respondents consider to be a deficiency, namely their birthplace. The fact that 21% of Canadians, and it may now be higher, uh, believe it very important that one be born here to be considered truly Canadian is dismaying. And, by the way, this corresponds almost exactly to other soundings where roughly 20% of Canadians, sometimes more, now are, are of the view that we should simply cut off immigration. Religion is slightly different. One can convert from one religion to another. So, to borrow a sports analogy, the degree of difficulty to satisfy this definition of usness is not impossibly high, as it is in the birthplace question. Still, the costs, both psychological and otherwise, of something other than completely voluntary conversion are extremely high. As high, perhaps, as teaching Jewish students that Jews killed Jesus. And higher, surely, than learning one of Canada's official languages. For difficult though it may be to acquire a new language, especially as an adult, at least this process is not zero-sum. Learning English does not entail rejecting one's native language. And the same goes for the cultural heritage piece of citizenship. Canadians, you will recall, were comparatively demanding or exclusionary, to use Pew's term, when it came to defining usness as sharing customs and traditions. Yet of all of the criteria uh, probed by Pew, this one, sharing a country's cultural heritage, has the lowest degree of difficulty. To be sure, as Yak suggests in his book on nationalism, learning how to share a country's cultural legacy is typically not so easy for first-generation immigrants. But for second-generation immigrants, this sort of acculturation is often quite successful, especially when schools take this part of the task of creating citizens seriously, and especially when the heritage they are being asked to preserve and enhance is, as the Charter explains, multi rather than unicultural. It used to be that Canada served as a powerful counter-narrative to the view that has gained currency among policy scholars the social, cultural diversity and social sol solidarity are incompatible. What the world needed, to quote Indigo, is more Canada's. That status, Canadian exceptionalism, is now in question. And indeed, there is some empirical evidence to suggest that what Keith Banting and his colleagues at Queen's call the immigration, citizenship, multiculturalism regime is eroding. To that evidence, we can now add the Pew survey, which shows that Canadians certainly are lukewarm rather than red-hot defenders of multicultural citizenship. Let me simply conclude, then, by suggesting that if we want to recapture that counter-narrative, maybe what we need to do is go back to school to recover the history of a school like Clinton Street, whose story, I hope I've persuaded you, is in many ways the story of that counter-narrative of citizenship. Thanks.